I'm Kim. I'm Megs. Welcome to the Atwoods End Podcast. <laughs> We're recording. <laughs> no, it's not the same. <laughs> Why are we here? What have I done? Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? Like, it's so obviously not. <laughs> You're just uneducated. It's not that bad. I don't know, is that even a word? Welcome everyone to the Atwoods End Podcast. This is episode 11. I'm Kim. And I'm Megs. And today we're thrilled to be welcoming our second guest of the show, Alessia. Now she has the dream job you've probably never heard of. And I've known Alessia since I was 14. We went to the same high school. You know, really thanks to social media. I've just been able to be in awe of her educational journey and all the really cool things that she does. Yeah, we were actually going to have Alessia scheduled in way sooner but as you know, my baby Hugo was born in April when he was supposed to arrive in March. And we had a whole thing at that time. And, you know, we're just delighted to have that scheduling all sorted out. So here we are. Yeah, I'm so excited to have our second guest on here. I feel like it's been like it feels like it's been so long since we've actually had someone else on that show. But I guess when you look at the episodes, it really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, it's not just at all. that we haven't, you know, we pre-recorded so many episodes that I feel like it's been ages since we've actually like got to I guess not really be in the same room as somebody but like have somebody else on these virtual calls and I mean like I don't mean to like knock on every wood available but you know with this never-ending pandemic maybe one day everybody will get to hear a show that was recorded that week in the same room in the same room (laughs) (laughs) I know except like this is the thing is if we start recording in the same room I'm gonna have to stop I'm so weird because you can't see me I'm like stretching my legs I'm like staring at the ceiling and then if we're in the same room like I can't do any of that anymore I'm literally sipping on a a cocktail right now there's nothing stopping (laughs) you from enjoying this time to be created (laughs) I'm doing some down dog (laughs) yeah I feel like it wouldn't even be weird if you were doing that in the same room I think I would just be really happy to be in the same room and (laughs) I feel like I've been looking forward to you know I don't think it's really happened yet where I've had that moment where I'm like it's over I think when I gently throw my mask into the wind and then pick it up and throw it out, that I'll like actually feel like this period of time has gone by. And yeah, I have this theory about time. Okay. And, you know, as we know, time doesn't necessarily exist. The way that cells work and your body works, cells remember the future and cells remember the past, whatever. When I was a kid and we were going on a really long trip, when we were leaving for that trip, I would tell myself, okay, you're going to throw yourself through time to when you're there and then when I got there I was like oh make sure you're throwing yourself back so that you who's throwing yourself forward will like get the memo and I used to do this and I used to do this when I like study for a test too (laughs) 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 so then when anything is like like gonna be really long you know or like when I was pregnant I was going into labor and I was like oh my god this is so scary this is I don't you know this baby is in it's got to come out we don't know how that's gonna happen and of course it was a super whole ordeal but I literally thought as I was leaving the house I was like when I come back there's gonna be a baby and then I just like you know and then when I came back I was like there's a baby yeah you know it's not crazy Uh, yeah no I I mean I guess it's like a mind over mind over matter (laughs) thing I've just never thought of being like okay I'm gonna catapult myself (laughs) into tomorrow but then launch myself back to tell today me to remember to do it 
Or like, you know, if you're on a test and you're like, damn it, is there anything? You're throwing it out into the universe. Like, is there anything that I need to study? Do you ever study something completely kind of random? And then you're like, dang it. Thank goodness I, I studied that <laughs> because it ended up being on the test. Is that yeah. Just- <laughs> yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think this is just like, you know how I am about learning that octopuses have beaks. And like, I feel like now you're like throwing in the like concept of time and like it's, my brain just is not gonna process it it's still it's still working on sea creatures I, at the moment i feel like i'll get a text from you at one point being like okay so if you were to do this in regards to time do you think that would be plausible <laughs> yeah i've been thinking a lot about throwing myself through time the past couple days that being said it's now the time to welcome our second guest <laughs> Okay, so welcome, Alessia. So great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I literally have so many questions for you. And as soon as Maggie suggested that we have you on the show, I was like, like, name your day. I'm there. I will make myself available. I have so many questions. Now we have to kind of like start with the basics because I feel like everyone's going to be like, wait a second, who, who's Alessia? Um, so tell us, what is your official title? And this kind of is a spoiler, but what branch of law do you practice in or like... Is that even how you'd say that? Like, what's your what's your specialization? I am a intellectual property and branding lawyer. So just a little disclaimer here for everybody that the information in this podcast episode is for general information slash for entertainment purposes, and that there is no relationship between you and Alessia. No information contained in this episode should be constructed as legal advice from At Wit's End or from Alessia herself. So just enjoy them. So I work with clients and help them protect and enforce their intellectual property. Specifically, I specialize um, and work a lot with trademarks, things like a logo or a brand name or a product line. And I work with a number of clients across various different industries, uh, but I do have a focus on fashion and I'm building out my practice in fashion and apparel. Which is like the coolest thing ever. I tell everyone, I was like, I know a fashion law lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Did you go to law school knowing you wanted specifically to work in the fashion industry? Like I feel fashion law is a relatively newer field, but like that might just be my own cluelessness about the the many arms of the law. But yeah, what, what did you, I guess, go into law school wanting to do? I mean, I personally already had an interest in fashion generally. Prior to going to law school, I went to business school. So I studied business and marketing and branding. And so I knew practicing law in relation to, you know, like marketing and branding and how companies work on portraying themselves online or through traditional forms of advertisement was something I wanted to incorporate into what I did as a lawyer. And so that's how I really came across intellectual property and started looking more into that in my earlier time at law school. And then that kind of led into looking at cases or or various different areas of IP infringement relating to fashion and apparel and design and entertainment. I mean, I think I definitely had prior interests that played into wanting to pursue intellectual property and trademarks um, with a focus on fashion and it was just through those interests that it, it came to fruition like even in my first year of law like I started a fashion law blog and so I just did a lot of things to help me learn about the the area but I definitely wouldn't say fashion law is something that 
I don't think a lot of people go to law school thinking <laughs> that's what they're going to get into. Slash even know, right? <laughs> I had never heard of it before, uh, like, Maggie introduced me to you, or I guess to you on social media, and I started, like, reading more about it, and I was like, I did not even know this existed. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely, it's an industry, right? So it, it's not like it's only intellectual property or trademarks, that's just my practice and the area of law that I work in. But when you talk about fashion and the law, there's so many different areas of law that it could touch upon. Like there could be employment. There's so much employment um, employment law and employment issues with relate to, yeah, like with fashion and, and runway shows and, you know, working with models and environmental issues. There's a sustainability with respect to the fashion industry. So there's really like a a wide range of areas of law that play into the the fashion industry. Follow-up question, what was the hardest part of law school and what, if anything, did Legally Bond get right? <laughs> I feel like they kind of missed the mark on, on not making Elle Woods a fashion law lawyer. I feel like she was just like, what were, yeah, they should have done that. The hardest part of law school, I mean, that's like such a tricky question. I think generally law school was difficult just because, you know, you learn a lot about everything right away. So like the first year is more general where you take criminal law courses, tort law, contracts law. And so for myself, like the crim courses weren't something that I was, you know, particularly interested in. And so the hardest part about law school, oh my goodness, that is so difficult. I think, (laughs) I think... It's actually harder after you graduate law school and you're a, a practicing lawyer and Ooh, actually have to yeah. give legal advice. <laughs> but it's definitely a lot of information that's given to you throughout law school and you just have to kind of power through and learn it. And then once you start practicing, you realize that it's like a whole different ball game um, and you actually have to apply everything you learn. I guess it's that transition that I would right. say is. Yeah. So I feel like even even like leaving university in general and transitioning into working for an actual company is hard. It's a lot harder when you also are, there's legal stakes in the matter and you're actually this is advising people on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So did Legally Blonde get anything right? Honestly, I'm going to just disclaim right now, I have never watched Legally Blonde <gasps> in full. I don't even know if I want to cut that out or just make you feel the <laughs> wrath of the 16 Instagram followers we have. I honestly actually always tell people that. I'm actually like, I, I, I never watched Legally Blonde in full. I watched bits and parts, and then I never got around to fully watching it because I just felt like I watched it without watching it because it's all over social media. I think so. That's fair. What? That's no, it's so not. funny. No, it's I actually, you need to watch it. I know. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys That's seen funny. The Terminator? No. No. Okay, good. Neither <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got we got that out of the way. Okay, there we go. So we're, we're fine. We're fine. Okay. So, like, what kind of cases do you work on, I guess, like, on a day-to-day? Like, if you're taking clients, what are they coming to you most often for? I guess you were saying, like, IP and trademark stuff and things like that. Yeah, so uh, clients will come to me for, like, the prosecution of their their trademarks. So that's essentially, you know, like, you create a brand um, and you have a brand name and then you want to get it registered with the Canadian IP office in order to in order to protect it. And so I help companies and brands um, with their trademark strategies and and determining the, the best trademark strategies to move forward and how to best protect what they're creating as well as just their image. Usually when companies come to me, they wanna trademark things like 
their name, so it's more of a word mark, or something like a logo, which is a design mark. But there's also like other areas of trademarks, like 3D shapes that could possibly be trademarked. They're definitely less common, non-traditional, in comparison to just a word or a logo and design. Mm -hmm. But those are, I think, like super interesting areas of trademark law where designers or individuals in the fashion industry really have the ability to try protecting their designs against counterfeiters and infringers if they're actually able to move forward with something like a 3D shape trademark registration or a mode or way of packaging their goods. If that could actually act as a source indicator and they're able to say, you know what, this is you know, part of my brand and how consumers recognize my brand Mm -hmm. um, and able to get protection for that. That's definitely huge, I think, for the brand as a whole. Well, and I know with the internet, like, I mean, everything's so accessible these days and especially with like Instagram and stuff being such a big e-commerce platform now that Mm. I've seen a lot of cases where like big brands are copying, stealing from like artists or like smaller brands and all of a sudden they're coming out with the same pattern or something that's like really similar. Like, is that something you see a lot of or is it something that those smaller brands aren't really able, I guess, to even seek that legal counsel? Yeah, like I I don't know how often you see those fights actually play out. It definitely happens. And so I think that's why it's so important to think about as an emerging designer or a startup brand think about protecting your ip earlier on but at the same time it's difficult because if you are a startup designer i'm sure the things you're thinking about are you know how can i get brand exposure or product exposure Mm -hmm. you know how can i apply to this like fashion show runway and get accepted to like new york fashion week Um, and you're not thinking you know if i debut a design on the runway is that gonna cause problems if I want to register that industrial design moving forward in Canada, right? You don't, designers aren't going to think that before they actually showcase their goods. And because fashion is such a, it's an industry that's very much so based on the look and feel of items, designers and startups want to just share things and get it out into the market and, you know, get the feedback from consumers that they need in order to continue growing. It's not uncommon for, you know, if a, a startup or an emerging designer share something, on Instagram or on social media. I know you both had mentioned that, you know, like e-commerce is booming and and Mm -hmm. so many things are being done online now. It's not uncommon if that happens for a larger company to see and possibly, I suppose, get inspired, um, maybe by, Mm -hmm. (laughs) get inspired possibly by, you know, the the smaller designers work. At that point, it's, I think it's it's sometimes difficult for startups Mm -hmm. and emerging designers to fight off. um, To even prove mm -hmm. that they were the first ones, right? Exactly, yeah. And this has happened. There was a case, I remember being in law school and it was one of the first things I wrote about. The Instagram handle was Tuesday Basson and she made these fashion pins and she posted about them, I guess on social media or on her website. And then Zara, fast fashion retailers are often the ones that are, you know, they're often the ones that are complained about the most, I think, by um, designers that claim that their works are infringed. So I think she had had found her pins on Zara's website and because she had posted about it on social media, she posted about, you know, the letter she sent them and then the letter they sent her back. And that's how she actually gained popularity and how she actually got her story heard but Mm -hmm. if you don't have that platform to say you know this is my work and what this is what i'm doing and this is how you're you know this this big brand is copying me i think it could be very difficult 
and discouraging for emerging yeah. designers to, to see that happen to their, their work. Yeah, David and Goliath kind of thing. Now, so last week I listened to your talk that you gave about protecting your IP or intellectual property. And one of the things that I found fascinating, which I'm sure our listeners will too, if you want to expand a little bit, if you can, about the usefulness of items. And I can't remember which section that fell into, if it was trademark or copyright or something else. I was breastfeeding and I was watching and normally I like take notes when I listen to any kind of talk, but I was unable to do so. But yeah, usefulness of something. I guess I'll I'll kind of give a bit of background before I jump into that. So when you're trying to protect something like a shape of a product. So let's say we're talking about like the shape of a handbag. You could try using various forms of IP or intellectual property to try protecting that. One thing you could do is if you are a hugely popular and famous handbag company, so let's say you're Chanel and you want to try protecting the shape or certain features of the shape of the Chanel boy bag, for example, through trademark law, you may be able to register or get registration of a a 3D mark that I was talking about previously. Mm -hmm. But usually to try to get this type or to obtain this type of registration, you need you need to show that that 3D element of your product is distinctive to you and your brand. In Chanel's case, I'm sure that wouldn't be a problem because everyone recognizes boxed shape of the bag or, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that the the C's are and are formed as part of the lock. And I'm not actually sure if they have a 3D shape mark of their of their bag, but that's an example mm-hmm. of how you can use trademarks to protect that. If it's, you know, you've, you've put in the marketing and advertising dollars and you have a really great reputation, but something like that very likely isn't going to be available for an emerging designer. And so then there's the concept of using copyright to help protect things that you're creating as a fashion business. And so copyright, you, you obtain copyright just by creating the item or or whatever your the work so like often when you think of copyright you think of music or songs Mm -hmm. and you get copyright just by creating it and so there's the concept of trying to use copyright to protect products that fashion designers are making so when it comes to things like 2d designs so the design of a fabric or any type of threading or or knitting or woven pattern on the fabric Mm -hmm. could be protectable by copyright if it meets the requirements of copyright law. Um, But then there's also the concept of 3D shapes or designs and whether they're protectable by copyright. But in Canada, there is a section of the Copyright Act where if it's a useful article, if the design's on a useful article and more than 50 are created, then copyright protection won't be available unless it's, you know, could be considered not a useful article. So sometimes jewelry is considered not to be useful just because like depending on what type of jewelry, if it's like a cufflink, then yeah, that's probably useful. But if it's purely ornamental, then maybe you could get copyright protection of the earrings as as almost like mini sculptural pieces. But otherwise, copyright is difficult to obtain as well. And that's why getting industrial design protection of your like, again, if we're going back to like a handbag and like a a very unique and novel shape of the bag is something that could be very useful in in order to overcome the fact that with copyright, if you're creating more than 50 and it's useful, and usually like fashion is considered useful, right? Like it's very rare. that it's not considered useful because you're wearing it and so it's useful there's arguments that if you if you look more so at high fashion 
there's less usefulness useful about some of the yeah. things that are on runways, right? Exactly, right? Like you look at, at, at items that some high fashion brands are debuting and you're like, I would never wear, like, where would I wear this? Where does anybody wear this? Or like anything that Kanye well, West I think makes. That, <laughs> I was going to say, I think that when I'm scrolling Zara's website sometimes and I'm like, I don't understand how this has been styled on somebody. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's their strategy. They're just like trying to show that it's not useful so they could get the copyright protection. Who knows? Yeah, but... who's like, ha ha ha, I must copy this random weird thing, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's definitely, you know, the law traditionally understands clothing to be useful articles. And so because of that, it can be, it's difficult to get or to argue you have copyright protection of the shape of something. And absent of being a Chanel type brand where you're able to possibly register trademark protection or something like a 3D shape, um, that's where design protection through industrial designs in Canada can be helpful and useful. But when looking at design protection, there's the caveat where if you've disclosed the design, so if you've debuted it at a runway years prior, that could possibly act to a barter registration because when you register a design, it needs to meet the requirement of being novel. Like and novel so, being new? Like just yeah, being new. Yeah. 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 And so there's ways like obviously if, if your design has changed or if you want to protect a specific element of a design, um, you know, there's there's ways to to show that it, it can be novel, but but generally designers may not be thinking about this requirement when they're going about their day-to-day and right. and uh, disclosing right. their designs, right? I was just going to say it It makes me think of like Missouri and those, I don't know if you've ever seen their croissant rings that yeah. they have or like they have those croissant hoops and I swear. Everybody has them. It's, yeah, and but as soon as they put them out, I, I've seen so many other brands that also produce those rings and like yeah. hoops and stuff like that with that exact same shape, but I feel like that's like that's what that made me think of when you were talking about that is specifically those earrings yeah you see them epic i i know exactly like the croissant earrings and yeah. ring and the whole that whole brand that they have and yeah you like i, I do see it everywhere you go on amazon and oh, yeah. you'll see yeah so so many knockoff products and so that's why you know really really trying to protect your ip before you put it out um and who knows missouri maybe like does have some type of yeah. protection over it and even so them, right yeah, even so, you know, people could still be copying your stuff. And at that point, if you do have the protection in place, you could definitely move forward in, in trying to, you know, Cease get... and desist or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so then going back to this, I'm really into this usefulness thing. I thought this, this blew my mind. But okay, so if you have like a scarf, a scarf is useful, right? But linking of like Burberry scarves, again, in your talk, you kind of touched upon colors. Can you Can you go over that for us? How colors and patterns how they've kind of found like a clever loophole being able to protect something like a scarf which is useful and therefore can't be copyrighted but what do they do then instead i would say like for an example like that we were talking about a burberry scarf something like the design of the scarf so like burberry's like stripes like i don't know what the actual design name is they're they're well-known stripes that are indicative of of the brand that may be subject to copyright protection just on the basis that it's a design so if you think of things like painting or artwork that would be protectable by copyright so there's that um, consideration when it comes to designs on scarves Mm -hmm. when it comes to things like color and let me backtrack so when it comes like when we're talking about the design on the scarf 
that would be an exception to the rule that, you know, the design of a useful article can't be protected if you create more than 50. Mm -hmm. So that would fall under one of the exceptions found in the Copyright Act. When you're talking about color, and I think this is what I I, I probably spoke to in my presentation last week, but something like um, the Tiffany, the Tiffany Bloom Mm -hmm. could possibly be trademarked if it's um, an indicator of source. So if it shows to consumers that like you're the brand that is associated with this color blue. But again, that's one of those more non-traditional trademarks where you have to show distinctiveness or you know that you've acquired distinctiveness over the years. Wow. And so at that point, if you're Tiffany, then yeah, like it's, it's likely you may be able to show that the blue is an indicator of your brand. But if you are someone who, you know, started up yesterday and is creating something with a shade of hot pink, you may not be able to show, or you're, you're likely not gonna be able to show that it's it's distinctive to consumers. And when consumers see that shade of color, um, they're gonna think of your brand. Right, okay, sorry, total side note. Have you guys heard that Tiffany released this Everyday Objects collection where they're literally selling cups pens and most infamously a freaking aluminum can that literally costs 945 pounds which is like 1500 canadian dollars maybe more there is there was a a, like a really expensive brand that created paper clips i want to say it was tiffany but oh alessia that's literally our philomath segment how do you do it how did we just tie that in it just tied it all together wow that's funny (laughs) anyway no i was just thinking about like the colors and stuff and like how i feel like the gucci stripe too like the green and red and i think is it white like you know how gucci did that collaboration with fiat and you can buy like the uh gucci cars and like the seatbelt has those stripes and stuff on it like i feel like that's another one that's like Mm -hmm. so distinct to that brand exactly yeah and i do think i mean i don't want to actually say this for certain but i'm not because i'm not 100 percent sure but things like stripes can definitely you know be trademarked in some type of way like if you consider adidas they use even just you know, three con right. stripes is right. a trademark. Um, and I think recently there's been a situation where I think it was Thom Brown yep. um, or another designer tried registering, I believe it was in the U.S., a, a trademark or something like pants with stripes on the on the side or shoes with stripes somewhere on them, like three stripes. And I'm pretty sure Adidas and Tommy Hilfiger opposed the mark. Adidas on the basis that there was three stripes and like obviously adidas is not gonna like that at all so they obviously were like you know what like this is you know these are all our registrations that include three stripes and then i think tommy hilfiger may have been on the basis that the colors were like red white and blue so it was a bit too similar i suppose to their registered and common law marks like even simple elements or colors can definitely be trademarked which i mean like somebody should go for orange because like who the heck is gonna be like i want orange you know like i feel like you're in or no tangerine i guess like the bank maybe yeah the bank maybe there aren't a lot of brands that are orange though but you know what this Um, kind of sounds sorry kim real quick a little side this kind of sounds like if you're there's no hope for the little guys or that's what it kind of feels like in fashion because on one end you have to be enormous to be able to be protected on like one hand or you need to be so unique that and do things correctly even just like thinking ahead 
in terms of, like you said, protecting that stuff before you're debuting it. But when you're a small brand, like that's, those are really expensive, like processes to go through, especially for something mm -hmm. to flop. But then it, it's like a double edged sword. Cause then at the same time, it's like, it's the one thing you don't think you need until that one situation happens where like all of a sudden H and M's making the same bathing suit that you designed and you're like, mm -hmm. what do I do? Yeah, no, it could definitely be difficult, but I mean, probably paint like not the best picture, but <laughs> um, coming from a lawyer, like you should protect everything. Um, and, but it, it could definitely be difficult for, for emerging designers, but you know, there's, depending on where you're even launching your brand so like i'm speaking pretty predominantly from the like a canadian or north american perspective which we have um, like 13 percent american listeners but this is for the canadians <laughs> <laughs> but even if you look at europe and european laws depending on if in europe like the fashion industry I think is much more prevalent and there's a lot more goes into uh, to, to supporting the industry in European countries. And so in the EU, there are certain regulations where you're able to have common law rights for your designs um, and common law being you don't actually have to move forward in registration. And that could be super helpful when you want like industrial design protection in the case that you've previously disclosed your design because you would get that protection just through creating the, right. the design similar right. to copyright, right? So depending on the jurisdiction, there's various, you know, different laws that can be helpful for for startup and emerging designers. So like definitely not all hope is lost and <laughs> it is possible, right? But going back to the Europe comment, I feel like th there's not much like camo usage or you know that like hunter wear that a lot of Canadians and Americans will sport. <laughs> I don't I don't see much of that in Europe. So I feel like that's also why they're millennia ahead of us in that aspect. <laughs> so like, okay, so Maggie was showing me your Instagram account, which is at Fashion Branding Law, and we'll link it in the show notes for everyone else to check out as well. And it's literally like my new favorite thing because I just <laughs> love reading about all of the different brands and like what's going on and stuff. Now I want to ask you specifically, what are the top three most interesting cases, either ones you've worked on or just like ones that you've watched played out in the industry? The one that I would say I found interesting, and it's something that I came across probably in their second year of law school. So it was definitely something where I was like, oh, this is interesting, and it caught my attention. But I remember, I think it was Louis Vuitton. They okay. had sued or started a lawsuit against, I think they were called, they were called My Other Bag. This company called My Other Bag created canvas tote bags. Mm -hmm. And then on the front of the canvas tote bag, they would put a designer bag on it like as an image oh so no, i don't know if you guys have seen it it was it, it looked like a tote bag right and then it just had a picture of like the speedy the louis vuitton speedy in the front or something along those lines and it had like a few chanel versions but i remember louis vuitton started a lawsuit because i, I think they had argued something along the lines of like it diluted the quality of their brand because they were placing very high-end items on inexpensive canvas totes. And so it diluted the distinctive quality of like a Louis Vuitton brand. I remember thinking, well, no one's ever going to confuse this canvas tote with like an actual, actual. bag. But you know what? <laughs> to be fair, sometimes these like big brands release silly shit. And then you're like, mm -hmm. who in the actual fuck is paying $4,500 for this canvas tote? You know, like, so yeah, for sure there would be no confusion, but like whether or not you 
I could put it past someone like Louis Vuitton. Yeah, but no, that was just one of the one of the cases that I found interesting really really early on and it just goes to show you know bigger brands and and really any brand should but how bigger brands really enforce their rights i think at the end of the day this was a u.s case it was, yeah, it was in the u.s i i think my other bag was successful in that at least i think for like the trademark infringement or maybe the copyright infringement but on one of the claims i think they were successful because they were able to argue that it's clearly a parody and no one is going to actually, it's not going to cause confusion. But like Maggie, you just brought up the point where brands are creating the wildest things. Tiffany's creating a paperclip. You never know what the brand's actually going to extend into. Right. And so in that case, like it's completely understandable why a high fashion brand consider something even like a simple tote bag mm-hmm. to be possibly diluting their brand. But I mean, like as the brand, like as, as my other bag, like I think, you know, that's like one of those like meetings that they didn't all attend to and the intern was like let's do this because as a just imagine the the legal costs associated with getting sued or even like in contact with louis vuitton like i can't imagine that that was a cheap endeavor how many canvas bags do you have to sell to make that worth it they think it was gonna be all good because pretty risky if i yeah if you ask me who knows yeah but yeah okay number two so recently Glossier filed uh, trademark applications for their like their bubble wrap pouch. So their pink pouches. Oh, like that's so interesting. I have like seven of those in my drawer right now. Yeah, yeah. So they because they they use it as a as a way of packaging the goods, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they clearly thought that the pouch itself is actually a trademark because it's like an indicator of sorts when people see the pink bubble wrap mm-hmm, pouch. Mm-hmm people think automatically like Glossier. They filed a trademark application for the pink pouch. And then I think as well, they filed the application for their pink box. But I found the pouch like super interesting. And I'm pretty sure, and this is all with the US trademarks office that I recall, they could have possibly filed it in Canada too. I'm not sure. But I know in the US, they had received an office action, which is like a correspondence you get from an examiner at the US Trademarks and Patents Office. Mm -hmm. So they had received correspondence that essentially noted that the packaging is functional. And because of this, um, it's used like the, especially with the bubbles, right? The bubble wrap, it it looks like bubble wrap. So it's, it looks like it's like a protective feature of whatever they're actually shipping out to consumers. And the, the main feature of the packaging has this utilitarian function and because of this you know you you can't use that as a way to say this is a distinctive element of my brand um so essentially the the office the uspto argued that it wasn't distinctive and it's not registrable without showing that the the bubble wrap had actually acquired distinctiveness to the glossy brand but they actually were able to get survey evidence and they were able to show the u.s patents and trademarks office that it was and from the last time i checked the pink bubble wrap pouch was registered i'm not sure about the box they were able to submit enough evidence and and convincing evidence from like surveys from consumers that said no like this like if i see a pink bubble wrap pouch Mm -hmm. i'm gonna think 100 percent this is glossier boom okay okay that's so interesting and Um, and number three right number three Hmm. (laughs) so i think something that has you know recently come up a lot i find super interesting um uh, like I, I have done work um, relating to this or I've had clients or brands um, inquire into it is 
like the whole concept of reworked goods okay. and how okay. yeah so like if you think of, of things like and this is actually a case in the u.s but if you consider like i've seen a lot on social media and on instagram of the reworked chanel buttons into like necklaces yes. or earrings mm-hmm. yeah automatically when i saw that i was like oh, this is like a super big trend right now. But like, I wonder how Chanel feels about it because their double C logo is everywhere and they're not the ones making these products. And so I think recently Chanel, maybe like the beginning of this year, Chanel filed a lawsuit against, I think the company was called Shiver and Duke. They create jewelry pieces and I think they create their own items, but they also create reworked goods. And with most of these brands that create work, reworked items, they will, you know, include disclaimers either when they post on social media or actually on their product when they ship it out to consumers saying the jewelry's reworked. It's an original design of like, for instance, Shiver and Duke, and it's right. made from authentic Chanel buttons, but, you know, it's not made by Chanel. But regardless, obviously like Chanel thought otherwise Um, and so I think their argument is essentially that consumers are still going to mistakenly believe that the jewelry is authorized by Chanel or created by Chanel or made in conjunction with Chanel and because of this it could either like I would assume they're not so much worried about their loss of profits Um, but what they may be more so worried about is just the dilution of their brand and now everyone being able to wear a Chanel necklace at like a small fraction of the cost of what an actual Chanel necklace would be, right? Okay, I have like Um, two side stories after this. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, but that's like, and and I think this is still an ongoing issue. I'm not sure if it's been settled. I've seen a lot of that too with the bag that locks for purses and stuff like that too, that they get reworked a lot of the time from Mm -hmm. like, high-end brands into necklaces and even like a couple weeks ago I bought a bag that's made from like a reworked tapestry it's just like an old like but it's definitely something somebody like stitched themselves tapestry and this company in the UK reworks them into like fanny packs and like they put them on the back of denim jackets and things like that and I got this bag I'm assuming this tapestry is old enough that probably the person who created it doesn't care it's still something where like it is somebody else's work technically Mm -hmm. that has now Mm -hmm. been reworked into this bag and I I've never really thought about the copyright, I guess, difficulties with something like that. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so number one, yeah, the dilution of the brand. Okay, yes. Is it true? Does anybody know if it's actually true that many of these like really high-end brands will burn extra bags at the end of the season so to Mm. not like flood the market Mm. so that there is no discount, like there's no discount Louis Vuitton or like, you know, like there's like coach outlets and stuff, but there's no like those really high end brands. You don't find too many of those outlet stores because they don't want any like you're either paying the highest price or you're not getting it at all. Like, does anybody know if that's true? I I, I think it is true. I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty sure like even if brands have a defect with their items, they won't sell it because of quality. Right. So I, I definitely wouldn't be surprised that brands may burn things in order to not you know, have it on the resale market. But I think I actually did read an article like a few weeks ago that spoke to whether IP laws and intellectual property protection, how it impacts sustainability in fashion. If companies are able to enforce their brand rights, which they should be able to, how does that impact sustainability in the sense of whether or not we're actually able to rework goods um, and sell them, right? Or if everything after one use needs to be thrown out. 
Yeah, it is so interesting. And I think like, yeah, the sustainability side of the fashion industry interests me so much, especially that kind of the season's over, we didn't sell this stuff. What do you do with it? After that, when you not necessarily going to like make a profit off of it anymore in your own stores, but like, you know, there's so many brands that don't go and then like donate those clothes or like do something with it, but they're like actually just like throwing it all in a dumpster and like cutting it up. Right, right, right. But trying like to get fast rid of it. fashion on the other end of the spectrum and they're just as bad right when you create things yeah. that you don't really have like how much ip protection do you even get for fast fashion items probably not a lot because mm-hmm. by the time you get through those processes then that teddy coat you know which yeah i know the three with- of us all had teddy coats <laughs> <laughs> but like by the time fast fashion brands are producing this kind of stuff by the time someone's copying them they're already on to the next thing because there's 52 fashion cycles in the year yeah. for yeah. those brands yeah no that's exactly right when you look at the life cycle of the product cool. with fast fashion brands they're they're very likely relying on just any common law rights they probably have if mm-hmm. they were to even yeah. enforce any rights but but I would assume like a Zara or an H&M wouldn't even be concerned if three months down the line, their piece of clothing from, you know, January yeah. was being found elsewhere. Ooh, yeah, you can have right. it. I don't even like <laughs> yeah. it anymore. <laughs> yeah, there are already like three full collections. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is going back a little bit in time, but I actually have this distinct memory. Alessia, I think it might have been on your blog, but it was a couple years ago. And I remember reading this to, to my now husband and we were just like dating. And I was like, listen to how cool this is. Like, what do you think about this? And... <laughs> <laughs> he was like looking at me like I was crazy but I literally didn't shut up about it for like weeks it was if you recall like the ownership of like of like paparazzi photos so correct me if I'm mistaken but was it Kendall Jenner who had like used a photo of herself somewhere and then she was getting sued by the person who actually like took that photo do you, do you remember that or <laughs> yeah no that that happens I feel like a lot I feel like I see it quite frequently where a celebrity or like an influencer will use photos of themselves when I suppose they don't have the proper license to actually use the photo. The one that I'm thinking about is Gigi Hadid. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Did you write a blog post yeah. about that? Or like, did you did you do something with that? Yeah, I wrote okay. a, a post about Gigi Hadid. I may have wrote about Kendall Jenner too. I can't okay. remember. In the case that I'm thinking about, it's, it's where Gigi Hadid sued or was sued for posting um, an image of herself on social media. And so generally when for instance a photographer takes a photo it's likely that they're going to be the copyright holder you know unless they're working for a company and they're an employee usually whoever's taking the photo is the holder of the copyright and when Gigi Hadid posted the photo of herself on her own Instagram she didn't have I suppose a license in place to post it so it it happens I think quite often because especially if you're you know an influencer or a a celebrity and you see a photo of yourself you may just think oh it's a photo of me i want to post it it's of my face right yeah Uh, i feel like i have that all the time yeah (laughs) yeah but it's easy to you know like oversee the fact that it's not owned by you and i think what was particularly interesting in Gigi hadid's case was that her lawyer had created a very creative argument in in that there should be some type of almost co-authorship because the photo had gained popularity because of her right right or that they're like a more common argument would be fair use or fair dealing so essentially that's except that's an exception to copyright infringement where you could use it if it meets like a certain 
ground. So I think her, her lawyer had likely pulled out all the stops. But at the end of the day, traditionally, the paparazzi photo is going to be owned by the photographer or the company that took it. And so that's a very an interesting space because oh. a lot of celebrities may not respect that. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting because like really the the whole value of the photo itself is because of the celebrity that's in it. So I feel like there's some argument. (laughs) Like, I just feel like there's some argument in there that the photo itself wouldn't actually be the photo without their contribution to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't Mm -hmm. do it. Like, if you take a picture of me as much as I would like, it's not getting anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, so this actually brings us into the last little segment with with Alessia. So Kim and Alessia, you guys are going to guess the fashion idiom meaning. When I was looking to name this episode, I wanted like something funny, fashion-y, and they were all so stupid. (laughs) So I was like, (laughs) what does this even mean? You guys are going to try to tell me what it means I can give you an example if you need it, and then I'll give you the meaning. We'll see. We have two sleeve-related ones, okay? The first one is roll up your sleeves. That means, like, get to work. Yeah, right? Roll up your sleeves. Yeah, like, get get down to what you need to do. Yeah, to prepare for hard work. And it's very similar to the term, like, buckle down. So let's roll up our sleeves, everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Number two, an ace up your sleeve. Oh, it's like when you have, like, like a trick to pull out. Got, like, a Mm -hmm. hidden something hidden that you're gonna if you're a lawyer you have an ace up your sleeve and you're gonna like whip it out when your opposition doesn't know you have it i would say the lawyer is the ace up your sleeve Kim. (laughs) i'm thinking as a lawyer okay you know i'm like being strategic with my plan yeah (laughs) yeah it also refers to cheating at a card game because you hide like a favorable card up one sleeve which like doesn't fully make sense because not okay number three tighten your belt i feel like that means like get to work again <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah that's what i would guess too i i feel like i'm getting pull yourself up by your bootstraps energy from that phrase okay. so that close. i feel like it's the same kind of thing so this one is to spend less money than you did before and this um... one's like not that not a nice little backstory but if you think of like when people when the economy is bad and stuff and people are losing their oh, jobs no, like they're hungry they're hungry and they need to tighten their belts yeah so it's a way oh. of like well that's sad <laughs> i didn't know I was thinking about it. and then i was like oh my gosh okay I was like, we'll bring balance to the show we'll bring balance to the show okay yeah, we're gonna bring it down for a minute <laughs> yeah. okay number four hot under the collar um oh I don't know. I feel like that. Um, I feel like if you're hot under the collar, you're probably like stressing about something. I like, have, you know, like, I have an example. Sweating. Sure. When I rejected my friend's idea about eating at a fancy restaurant, he got rather hot under the collar. Oh, like agitated? Like angry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very angry about something. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, last one. I can start using that one. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm hot under the collar. (laughs) Don't push me. (laughs) (laughs) Next time my bubbly water isn't ready for me at bedtime. Okay. Now, number five. (laughs) Off the cuff. Isn't it like when you say something offhand, kind of? What? What do you mean offhand? Yeah, off the record. 
off the cuff. It's like you didn't plan it. You just kind of like spontaneously said it, you know, like it just came to your mind. Correct. Yeah. If you speak off the cuff, you say something without having prepared or thought about your words first, which I feel like is a great way to end the show because a lot of times like I may plan it, but most of the time I just completely go off the cuff to the end. But yeah. Yeah. So that does that does wrap up the episode. We are going to finish off with the fellow math segment. But first, we are going to say goodbye and thank you to Alessia for joining us on the show today. I feel like I've learned a lot. I, I can't wait to listen to this again and just be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So <laughs> it was great fun. Yes, thank yeah. you. No, thank you both for having me. It was great to chat. And we're going to link in all your, your Instagrams and your websites. And, you know, for all you brands out there, this is the IP Canadian lawyer to get in touch with. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And yeah, it was yeah. good. Yeah, that was wonderful. Okay, so now to the last segment of our show. And now our Philomath segment. Yay! I just. <laughs> Sorry, your fake crowd noise. <sighs> anyway, so yes. today we're talking about the history of the paperclip. Not only the history, but basically how the paperclip was used as a sign of German resistance into the Nazis during World War II. Norway had declared itself neutral in the conflict and Hitler, you know, wasn't about that. So he wanted the waters because basically to be able to move through Norwegian waters, like there was it was optimal. So they just kind of went, you know, and after a few months of struggle, like the Germans successfully began their occupation of Norway and they drove like the allied troops out. The royal family got exiled. The government was gone and you know everybody was out of the way and so the germans attempted to like strip away norway's culture and replace it with nazism and you know teachers were told to join the party and to teach the nazism and like churches were you know told to teach obedience to the leader and to the state blah 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 nazis are taking over and in the autumn of 1940 basically students at oslo university started wearing paper clips on their lapels as kind of like a non-violent symbol of resistance, unity, and national pride. And so the idea is, like, besides binding things together, it was thought that the paperclip was chosen as, like, the symbol of resistance in part because many people incorrectly believe that the inventor of the paperclip was was Johann Waller. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm so sorry, Norwegians, if I'm not. let me know if i'm saying it wrong i feel like i do this every episode i pick culturally you know i'm gonna do a polish one next episode just so i can say the words perfectly anyway so Waller was granted a patent okay for his paperclip in germany as well as in the united states in 1901 though he didn't actually apply for one in norway the problem though was he didn't actually invent the thing that we know as a paperclip because that okay. paper clip, which was known as like the gem paper clip, it was already around. It was very popular throughout Europe before Voller had even come up with his design, which, by the way, never even wanted to, to, to be manufactured. It was never sold. And so his patents, they eventually expired. Nevertheless, many encyclopedia and like literally Google, because I Googled it just to kind of fact check this back and forth. They'll falsely credit him as the inventor of the paperclip. There's even a 23-foot statue that was made out into in his honor in, 18, in 1989 
showing the paperclip he did not invent as oh the God. one that he came up with. <laughs> and then Norway's like, let's make a stamp commemorating the honor of valor. And it was not his paperclip again. Like, the idea that the paperclip was invented by this Norwegian man was prevalent. The fact that paperclips were there to, like, bind things together. They were cheap, really easy to be you know, like access and stuff. That's why it was the perfect like symbol for this subtle resistance in Norway. Cause like we should actually cover that in another episode is just like subtle resistance because Norway was just badass during World War II. <laughs> but anyway, so this begs the question of like who the fuck invented the paperclip? And the right, because actual- I know I'm just like baffled by the fact that we've got this statue and like we're celebrating this guy who made like some knockoff trademarked paperclip that he never even <laughs> oh, put into just, production. I just I love that when I have like my train of thought, you're 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 in the same freaking tracks because no, I thought you were gonna say you're in a totally different place. <laughs> no, 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 you're literally like this good. Is okay, exactly my progression of thinking because this is I'm like reading and googling and researching and stuff. This is how I was thinking. So basically, nobody actually knows for sure of who invented that paperclip. So that gem paperclip that we know of today with like, it's like super simple, but super clever design. It was never actually patented, but no, it was it, probably invented by a woman. Oh my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. But anyways, it was basically manufactured by the gem manufacturing company in Britain in like the 1870s. And then it comes into the US in like the 1890s. But in Swedish, the word for paperclip is actually gem, which is like, think of like Kleenex, right? Like when someone's like, oh, can you pass me a Kleenex? I'm sorry, you meant tissue, but by the clever branding of Kleenex Co., you asked right. for a Kleenex, right? And there's like Band-Aid too. It's actually a yeah. plaster, not a Band-Aid, whatever. Anyway, so even like when I was Googling it, the Norwegian inventor, they like, I'm like, who invented the paperclip? And they're like, Johan Waller, a Norwegian inventor with degrees in electronic science and mathematics, invented the paperclip in 1899. You know, I was like, man, Johan didn't do the, the work of, you know, but he's getting all yeah, the glory. Johan really, like, scammed his way into infamy. He really did, okay? There were 65 different designs for paperclips and 65 patents that were created all to do the same thing interesting did they all look the same no they all look very different because we're talking about like intellectual property (laughs) hire alessia as your lawyer or else someone named johan will come and make sure you're represented scam his way to the top all of a sudden you're gonna be like inventing something and someone else is gonna have a statue holding your invention (laughs) no it's just a paperclip he's not in it it's just a giant paperclip oh i was literally picturing this statue was like him with like this holding up this tiny paperclip a bronzed statue of a man very like statue of liberty-esque but with a paperclip (laughs) it's 23 feet of paperclip concludes our philomath segment so thank you everybody for joining in this is our 11th episode called a la mode (laughs) okay uh thank you everyone for listening Uh, i don't like you just laugh at me it's because you were like literally talking in normal canadian english and then this like thick parisian accent came out for those three words and then you just went back to being like and yeah and that was our 11th episode Anyways, follow us on Instagram. And we'll, we'll, and we'll, we'll end it there. Follow us on Instagram <laughs> at, at Wits and Podcast, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.